Trigger warning, you're about to listen to the American Christian Thinker. Trigger warning. Anybody who can't handle adult conversations, topics, this is your trigger warning that we are giving you right now. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. You are about to be triggered. Give me a joke. I cannot believe this is happening. I'm literally about to fucking kill myself and I'm not kidding. You better fucking fix this shit right now. I literally am going to die. I need an ambulance. Welcome to the American Christian Thinker. I am so sorry to my world. I am so sorry to my world. This is not what we want. Trigger warning, you're about to listen to the American Christian Thinker. Trigger warning. There's so much potential um, for beauty and for devastation. In this one moment, it's just almost incomprehensible that they can exist right now. So, so close. Welcome to the American Christian Thinker. Welcome to the American Christian Thinker Podcast, brought to you by The Theology Pit. As Christians, we're called to act and not just sit back. We confront the culture head-on, dealing with social justice warriors, atheists, anti-Christians, cults, and religions. All and any topics will be socially driven. What trends publicly will get attended to publicly. Now, here's your host, Samson Kovac. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for the applause. I appreciate that. Now, listen, we're back here at the American Christian Thinker, the act, and our act for today is we are continuing through the history of the racist Democrat Party and how they are overtly racist. They just hate America, and they pretty much want to destroy this country. And in the last three podcasts, hopefully you can see just the vitriol that pours from liberals, progressives, Democrats, whatever they want to call themselves. They are just people that like to oppress and that they can't help it. It's in it's in their nature. They see, I don't know if they seem to hate humanity or what it is, but they want to control everything because they're always of the opinion that they are so much smarter than everybody else. And because they're smarter than everybody else, they can run your life perfectly. Now, we're continuing through uh, the article that we've been reading called uh, The True and Detailed Racist History of the Democrat Party by Robert Zerfing. And it's I think it's been a really good outline so far that I've been able to read and to um, uh, kind of... Uh, Go in and take a microscope or magnifying glass, rather, to some of the specific areas. Now, we are up to the 13th Democrat president, which is Jimmy Carter. He was elected in 1977 and is another contender for the worst president trophy, mainly for bowing to the Russians in the midst of the Cold War, failing to recover 20 American hostages from Iran and accomplishing practically nothing to recover from the recession he was in. What many people don't know is that Jimmy Carter set the stage for the bank crash and Great Recession of 2008. 
See, the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977 sought to address discrimination in loans made to individuals and businesses from low- and moderate-income neighborhoods. The act mandates that all banking institutions that receive Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, insurance to be evaluated by federal banking agencies to determine if the bank offers credit in all communities in which they are chartered to do business. Basically, this was an extension of the quote-unquote great society ideology that banks needed to be forced to give loans to those who couldn't afford it. Now, this great society, of course, is piggybacking off the New Deal, okay? And that New Deal that, you know, FDR put in place. But this, you know, Jimmy Carter is jumping off of LGB, uh, LBJ, you know, Lyndon Johnson, and he is just kind of adding to this great society. But he's taking it in kind of a different way where um, Johnson did take it a little bit in this economic way, but he mostly was taking it through um, the um, social programs and all the things to help entrap and enslave people, the welfare programs and that sort of thing. And this did keep them down, but it still allowed them to save money, to have businesses, to better themselves economically. So we have to go back, all the way back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt to find out what the heck was going on. And actually to Herbert Hoover right before him. You see, you had the Great Depression that happened. Um, in October of 1929, the Great Depression occurred. The stock market crashed, okay? By January of 1930, um, it was starting to get back on track, okay? It was the, this is the ebb and flow of a free market system. But the government decided, hey, free markets are not a good idea, okay? Because look what happened. I mean, you had businesses shut down. Um, people weren't able to buy things. It was just, it was a domino effect. And what they needed to do, instead of allowing it to kind of ebb and flow and go through it, they decided, hey, we need to figure out something different. So what did they do? They went and got a hold of a British economist, okay? And I know the Democrats just love everything they do in the UK, all right? They are just like, oh, we want socialize this and socialize that because it'll be perfect and government needs to be central. So they got this British economist named Jaynard, named John Maynard Keynes. And if you've ever heard of Keynesian economics, that's where it comes from. And the, the kind of downfall of this is that Herbert Hoover, uh, I mean, coming off the heels of Calvin Coolidge and Warren G. Harding, who were two, you know, fantastic, uh, Republican presidents that we had Calvin Coolidge being the 29th, um, the 30th president of the United States, he was uh, 29th vice president of the United States, was, I mean, awesome. He said, let's just get government out of the way. And really, people that admire Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan admired Calvin Coolidge. You got to go back to Coolidge. He was fantastic. I mean, he was like, hey, let's take regulations off. Let's stop overtaxing people, get the boot of the government off the throats of small businesses. And hey, I'm going to go golfing and just allowed it to flourish. And we had the roaring twenties. I mean, it took care of itself. He was, um, president from, uh, 1923 to 1929. And it wasn't until, you know, Herbert Hoover took over 
And he had some ideas that he would try, like the Hoover Dam and things like that, to try and, you know, uh, boost commerce, boost the economy. But he said, hey, let's find this uh, British Yahoo named um, uh, John Maynard Keynes and Keynesian Economics. So if you're not sure of Keynesian Economics, let me give you a kind of overview of what it's doing. And this overview is taken from Investopedia. If you look up uh, what is Keynesian Economics, this is what you're going to come across. Economics is a school of thought in which government plays an important role in mitigating economic recessions. It's named after British economist John Maynard Keynes, who advocated the need for government intervention during the height of the Great Depression. Keynes argued that governments needed to push against the economic tide in order to lessen the impact of the boom and bust cycles that were inevitable in a free market economy. In other words, Keynes thought that the government should spend less money during times of economic prosperity and spend more during a downturn. By and large, proponents of Keynesian economics believe that a depression is caused mainly by excessive savings and a decrease in aggregate demand, which is the total demand for goods and services in a country. The role of the government is to spend where necessary in order to stabilize the economy, whether it's by lowering interest rates or increasing governmental outlays. For example, the country of Investomerica applies aspects of Keynesian economics to its fiscal and monetary policies. When Investomerica's economy is in the midst of a boom period, lawmakers hike the tax rate, cut spending on social programs, and increase the cost of borrowing money. However, when Investomerica enters a recession, the government lowers taxes and interest rates and spends more money on programs in order to stimulate economic activity. Now, in order for the government to do any of this stuff, that means it would have to have a surplus of money. It would have to have some way in, um, you know, investing within people. Hang on, I got stuff playing back here. Um, it would have to hold on to it, but our government doesn't do that. Our government constantly has a deficit, which means they constantly overspend more than they take in. They never have a surplus. They never have a savings. I remember whenever um, Zimbabwe turned itself around, Zimbabwe was in a huge amount of debt. It was ridiculous, and they, they completely turned it around, and it came to the point where they had like like uh, what was it like $20 in their bank account the government the entire government of Zimbabwe had $20 in its bank account and people were like huh the government only has $20 and it's like hey you know what right now we have like negative 19 trillion okay so they're actually 19 trillion 20 dollars ahead of what we are. I mean, that is, that's the problem with this. So the only way that they can then do something about this is through a concept called fiat currency. And fiat currency is where you just have to print money. Okay. This was um, first enacted, I believe, by um, uh, Abraham Lincoln after the Civil War in order to pay for the Civil War. He had to go and he had to interact, uh, you know, fiat currency, uh, take on some debt uh, for the uh, the U.S. government. Um, but a lot of these presidents that came after him, the Republican ones, were like, "Hey, we got to get back to the gold standard. We have to, you know, uh, balance our budget. We have to pay all this stuff back. We have to do that." Keynesian economics came in and just started wrecking stuff, and that's why the Great Depression lasted, um, you know, until like 1936. 
six. I mean, it just kept going through because they kept trying this crazy stimulus plan that doesn't do anything. It doesn't create jobs. It doesn't spur business. It doesn't do anything like that. So they figured that because of Keynesian economics, where they say the problem is that people have too much savings. Okay, people are not allowed to have that much money. They're not allowed to get wealthy. They have to keep putting it back in. It has to be a socialist or communist understanding. We can't have a free market capitalist understanding. We can't have private property rights and people cannot own their own um you know, their own stuff. They, they, they can't have their own wealth. Wealth belongs to the government and the government takes it away and distributes it as the government seem, deems necessary. And this was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This was the great deal. This is what he pushed in. And this is the illegality of doing it. Again, Democrats do not care about the law. They hate the Constitution because the Constitution is there to limit the power of government, not the freedom of the people. Okay, it recognizes people's freedom. It does not give it to them. And it is to put a stranglehold on the government. It is to make the government very slow. It is to make the government a, a confined as much as possible so people can govern themselves. That is the whole point. But Franklin Roosevelt, he did not care. He completely ignored the Constitution. Now, if you're not that familiar with what part of the Constitution I'm talking about here, I'm actually talking about Article 1 of the Constitution, not the Bill of Rights. A lot of people are familiar with the amendments, you know, of, of the Bill of Rights, but I'm talking about the, the Constitution and not the amendments. So Article 1 of the, the Constitution deals with the, uh, the, the federal government. And it says, Article 1, Section 8, that Congress shall have the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. It's allowed to do that. Okay. But it's Congress, not the president. It has to be the Congress. Article 1, uh, Section 8 goes on to say, Congress shall have the power to coin money regulate the value thereof of foreign coin and fix the standards of weights and measures. Okay. And then article one, section 10, this is where they get in the trouble. Okay. This right here says no state shall enter into any treaty alliance or confederation, grant letters of marquee and reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. Now, there are books that you can check out on, um, you know, why uh, paper money and printed money like came about and how it came about. Um, one is called uh, uh, God, Greed and Money, I believe. And, and it's, it's a good one on the history of uh, currency and how it came about, because when inflation happens and, you know, the weight of the coinage was so much, but, you know, paper is a lot thinner, a lot cheaper um, and a lot easier to carry. But. I bring this up and you, you might be thinking to yourself, well, what does that exactly have to do with anything? Well, gold and silver, especially gold, though, was a way for people to um, save money very easily. Oh, I mean, you could you could get gold in 1934. Gold was $35 an ounce. OK, I, I should and I should say it went up to $35 an ounce before then. It wasn't before this Keynesian economic crap came in. Gold was at twenty dollars and sixty seven cents. In 1879, it stayed at $20.67 until 1933 with this Keynesian economics crap. Then it went to $35 an ounce. And from there, it steadily kept climbing to where it peaked um, 
at like $1,800 an ounce in, um, what was it 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. Um, but it just steadily keeps going up. It goes up and up and up and up. Um, and I don't know, there are some periods where it, you know, went down a little bit and we're talking like a quarter, 10 cents, you know, varying up and down, but every single year it just keeps going up more and more and more. So in 1934, it was worth $35 an ounce. Okay. And it was backed by, you know, the, uh, the weights and, uh, measures commission of the federal government saying, yes, this is how much it is. And any coinage that's made with this has to have a Troy ounce. If you're saying that it costs this much, you know, if you have like a $5 piece, well, then it has to have $5 worth of actual precious metal in it and that that's just law. So what did they do? Well, um, they decided to come in, uh, Mr. You know, President Roosevelt, the communist, the socialist, the whatever, the progressive, the liberal, decided to come in and make the private ownership of gold completely illegal. You heard me right. Through the New Deal, they made the Constitution, they ignored it. They ignored Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution by saying that no private citizen was allowed to own gold. Now, there's a great book called The Insolence of Office. It was written by uh, Ronald G. Wayne, and Ronald G. Wayne is the one who, um, along with, he's the one who bankrolled and funded uh, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs to start Apple Computers. And he wrote this book called Insolence of Office, and it's dealing with um, uh, it, it's really a book in like three parts. And the third part is dealing all with economics. And it's a very interesting history of you know, economics that he goes through here. And in it. Um, he says on page 220 here, uh, however, by domestically abandoning the gold standard in 1934, a curious consequence soon became evident. The U.S. government had held the power to deny a U.S. citizen redemption in gold for his $5 reserve note pre-1934 issue. So U.S. citizens could go, they could turn in their notes, you know, for, uh, you know, for their gold and get a $5 note. So if you had, you know, a, a $35 coin, then you could go and you could get, what is that? Seven of these, uh, $5 bills, more or less. That's backed by gold, a $5 note. And at any point you could take that to a bank that, you know, is uh, covered by the Federal Reserve and in insured by them. And you could say, hey, I want my actual gold for this and turn it in and they have to actually give you that gold. All right. But um, they denied this U.S. citizens from doing that. So if you had any of these notes, these pre-1934 gold notes, they wouldn't give you the gold for them. They would totally deny you for it. But at the same time, any Brit, Frenchman, Italian, German, or any other foreign national was fully entitled to get their quarter ounce of gold for such a bill. And the U.S. government, under commitments of international law, was powerless to deny them. So only U.S. citizens were being denied their constitutional right to have it. But... They said, okay, you know what, international law, yeah, we're going to let that supersede um, the rights in our countries, in our, in our country. And that's, you know, the, uh, that's the, the government for you. That's the Democrats for you here. So with this $20 exchange rate, 
you know, uh, per ounce of gold. Um, the gold was worth, as we said, at this point, $35 an ounce. Okay. But the, you know, you could get the $20 one and, and do the whole quarter ounce thing and, and, and that sort of thing because it was backed. Okay. So, um, Gold was then continued as backing for the U.S. government, issued uh, promissory scripts, gold-backed Federal Reserve notes, which was subsequently repudiated in 1934 by unilateral termination of contract, the UTC. The gold backing then in the government's hand uh, was then confiscated by the government. Okay, worse still, the government had then rendered private ownership of gold illegal. So they forced you to turn your gold in from 1934 to 1973 and under the force of law had brought up from the public hands even more gold at the government's price of $35 an ounce. Okay, so it was illegal from 1934 to 1973 for any American to own gold. To have gold, to have gold coinage, they were not allowed to own it. And the government forced you to sell it to them at $35 an ounce. But then this gets even better here because after private possession was again made legal in 1973, that gold that was confiscated from the people and then sold back to the public was sold back to the public at the price of $200 to $1,500 or ultimately $1,800 per ounce. Okay. That's insane. All right. That is, I mean... You force people by law by going to jail if they don't turn in this gold and you only give them thirty five dollars for it. And then when they're able to get it later, you say, okay, yeah, you can buy it back. But at two hundred dollars an ounce or three hundred dollars an ounce or four hundred or five hundred or eighteen hundred dollars an ounce, this gold that we took from you at this point. Okay. Now that's not to mention the ongoing dumping of gold tokens on the American public at exorbitantly inflated prices. Okay. So other countries could dump their gold on us at this point for these prices and, you know, we would have to pay it. So, um, Another thing that happened under the unilateral termination of contract means that one party in the contractual obligation refuses to honor that agreement and goes on to refuse to offer any form of proper compensation for his contractual abandonment. In the present context, every $20 Federal Reserve note issued prior to 1935 carried a contractual text specifically between the government and the holder committing to pay the holder $20 in gold. It implied that at the same time, Such uh, payment was due in the form of U.S.-issued gold coins. All right. Now, regardless of the circumstance, billions of these obligatory notes were simply abandoned and denied satisfaction by the government that had issued them. If any private citizen had pulled this trick, they'd be in jail and have the key melted down. Now, this is... (sighs) What the Democrats do. This is the Democrat Party. This is how they behave, and this is what they are. And the big problem that you have with this sort of thing and this amount of debt is that one day this debt is going to be paid back, either in money or in blood. But one way or another, history has shown it always happens. It always gets paid back. So what was FDR then able to do? He was then able to take away from poor people the ability to save. Because what happens when you don't have something like a tangible asset that actually um, stays 
uh, current that, you know, if you owned a a piece of gold, you know, in, um, you know, 1934 or whatever, actually, I mean, think, think about, go back beforehand. All right. If you owned a piece of gold, let's say that you owned a $20 gold piece in 1900. And then in 1920, it would still be worth that same amount. Okay. And maybe a little bit more, it would have that little bit of extra buying power to it. Okay. Same thing in like 1940. And then you held on to it to 1960. All right. If you were to do something like that, it was thirty four dollars and fifty cents, you know, in 1940 and in 1960, it was thirty six It made a couple bucks. It would stay with inflation. You could the the adage from Benjamin Franklin, a penny saved is a penny earned would actually hold true. But now if you put money in a savings account and in 30 years you go back to that savings account, then without any interest, without any inflation, without any way, if you took that that money, stuck it in a mattress or something and then pulled it out, what, what would it be worth now? I mean, how much is $20 worth now as opposed to $20 worth in the 1950s, 1960s? Okay, it's worth a lot less. So it it started stripping from poor people the ability to actually save and to actually get ahead. All right, Johnson then started uh, pushing this and by doing so, increasing the national debt in order um, to pay for all these like social programs using this ridiculous Keynesian economics stuff. And plus at the same time, wasn't even fully using Keynesian economics because it wasn't dropping taxes. They were still raising taxes. They were adding more taxes, more regulations, stripping the market of being a free market to where what people say, well, trickle down economics doesn't work because free markets don't work. It's like, yeah, no free markets do. When you put regulations on something, the market's no longer free. And this is a really good way to keep minorities down who are having a hard time getting ahead and, you know, actually forming their own bases and and their own governments like the Asians were able to do after, you know, they were released from the concentration camps. I mean, the Asian population is one of the fastest growing ones in the United States. They're the ones who, you know, people say, they have all these businesses. They open up all these businesses. Uh, the Native Americans have their own nation. They've been growing. Okay, they have their own schools. They have you know all this stuff that's going. They're growing as a nation. They're growing as a people because they have that central system. The Africans, on the other hand, are not because they're put back into bondage through these social programs, through these welfare programs. It's impossible for them to save unless they learn how to do you know proper investing and those sort of things. And even that could be skewered in a certain way because of this. But then. The Community Reinvestment Act came in and it started giving homes to people, putting them in debt when they couldn't afford it. They would look at them and say, well, you know, you won't be able to actually make payments on this house, but because of the federal government, I have to give it to you. Okay, I I have to allow you to have this money. It's it's not exactly a predatory lending on the part of the banks. It's a predatory um, enslaving, economic enslaving by the federal government through bureaucracy. Um, my wife was telling me when she went to uh, Slippery Rock, she would be on campus and walking through and there would be, you know, on the first few days of school and there would be all of these booths set up for different credit card companies, giving all these freshmen credit cards. And, you know, she fell into it and she had huge credit card debt. So she, besides student loans, she had a staggering credit card debt because she's a kid and she would just spend all this money on credit cards and then get, you know, addicted to it and stuff. And that's it. You just give these people money and it doesn't care. It doesn't matter how much you make. It doesn't matter matter 
you know, uh, what's going on. They want to keep you in that economic enslavement. When they say, hey, here's the minimum balance on your credit card, it's not going to pay it off for probably another, you know, 11 years, maybe 21 years, depending. And that's if, if you make your payments accurately and on time and the, um, the, the, the cost, the, um, the percentage of it that you owe back, the, the rate of interest doesn't go up because you missed a payment or something that can go as high as 29% at times. All right. So this, um, Community Reinvestment Act that Jimmy Carter did actually started this whole trend of mortgages and people failing in their mortgages, but at a much smaller rate. Now, after Jimmy Carter, there were some accomplishments for civil rights that were brought to you by the Republican Party. On September 15th, 1981, President Ronald Reagan established the White House Initiative on Historically Black Colleges and Universities to increase African-American participation in federal education programs. And on June 29th, 1981, President Ronald Reagan signed a 25-year extension of the 1965 Voting Acts right. Now, on August 10th, 1988, President Ronald Reagan signs the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, compensating Japanese Americans for deprivation of civil rights and property during World War II, internment ordered by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So as you can see, FDR did a lot of terrible things. As we see the Democrats do, the Republicans have to come in and do their best to clean it up, fix it, and make it better. And one cannot forget that on November 21st, 1991, President George H.W. Bush signed the Civil Rights Act of 1991 to strengthen the existing federal civil rights legislation. And this brings us now up to our most famous racist dem- or racist and rapist, I guess, rapist Democrat president, the 14th Democrat president, William Jefferson Clinton, who was elected in 1993. Clinton was constantly joked about as being our first, quote unquote, black president, though he um, his though through his record isn't exactly stellar. One of the biggest mistakes as president concerning the black community was potentially the violent crime control act of 1991. And to quote from first, uh, the former first lady Hillary Clinton, this bill was to deal with, um, to deal with urban youths, um, uh, that she referred to as super predators with no conscience and no empathy who were needed to be brought to heel. To take back our streets from crime, gangs, and drugs. And we have actually been making progress on this count as a nation because of what local law enforcement officials are doing, because of what citizens and neighborhood patrols are doing. We're making some progress. Much of it is related to the initiative called community policing because we have finally gotten more police officers on the street. That was one of the goals that the president had when he pushed the crime bill that was passed in 1994. He promised 100,000 police. We're moving in that direction, but we can see it already makes a difference because if we have more police interacting with people, having them on the streets, we can prevent crimes. We can prevent petty crimes from turning into something worse. But we also have to have an organized effort against gangs, just as in a previous generation we had an organized effort against the mob. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. 
In addition to that, he has appointed a new drug czar. You probably saw him Tuesday night. He's one of the most distinguished uh, active military generals that we have in our country. He's already proven that he knows how to interdict drugs because of his command of the uh, South American uh, activity on behalf of the United States. But General McCaffrey will make a big difference and I believe it is now time for all of us to know what we can do individually to be part of this anti-crime, anti-gangs, anti-drug effort. Now, Black Lives Matter and a lot of um, black Democrats and, and, and people who are in the media, African-Americans in the media, have complained that over the years police brutality has gotten worse and worse. And, you know, the crackdown in the inner cities, that um, the uh, prison system is just overflowing with, uh, you know, black people and black men at a ridiculous amount. It's almost as though they're being targeted. It's almost as though they're being put in place and yeah according to hillary clinton here these super predator black kids with no conscience and no empathy these animals basically that need to be brought to heel like they're a dog or something uh this is what bill and hillary clinton were bringing to the table another reason why i could not in good conscience vote for a woman who thinks this way this is what she thinks about people okay and she panders to the black community she totally pandered to them and, and saying i mean if if they didn't have a type of you know uh recent historical amnesia they would know this stuff about her and you know she would have lost the popular vote hugely bigly i should say but she didn't i mean it was it, all these people that have been marginalized, economically oppressed, physically oppressed, have the police and uh, drugs are sought on them, have been considered animals and brought to heel in the history of the Democrat Party here. This is the history of the Democrat Party. This is the way they think about people. And this is the way they behave. But yet they still uh, go and vote for them. I don't know if it's Stockholm Syndrome. Don't know what it is. But the second thing that Bill Clinton did um, it was to bolster the Community Reinvestment Act that Jimmy Carter put into law. Because of this, regulators in the mid-90s began to hold banks accountable in serious ways. Banks responded to this new accountability by increasing the Community Reinvestment Act loans they made, a move that entailed relaxing their lending standards, even to the point of predatory lending, all under the guise of equality and bringing up the poor. Banks were forced to give loans that the poor couldn't afford, which played a very big part in one of the worst recessions in our nation's history. Okay, they banks would have to go and they would be audited in like the worst ways where they would just go through them and say, how many uh, loans did you give to black people? And they'd be like, I don't know. It's not a question that we ask on our loan applications. So they figured, all right, here's what we'll do. We'll figure black last names, whatever they are. And we'll go through and figure, hey, you have to give a certain amount to these black last names. And if you don't, then, you know, we're going to fine you and there's going to be all kinds of um you know, things that are going to happen because of the regulations that we have on. So you banks better go out and you better actually push these loans and you better, um, you know, get people into this debt. And if you've ever seen uh, the movie, the big short, it starts dealing with a lot of this stuff right here in, in where this, this is where it, it really started to be pushed and where it came from. And this whole subprime disaster um, in January 21st, 1998, uh, PBS news hour was interviewing Bill Clinton and he started taking credit for this whole Community Investment Act because of the way he ramped everything up. But I would like to see some blunt talk. You know, we On affirmative action? 
Well, we had some blunt talk on mm -hmm. affirmative action. I, I don't think the whole debate ought to be about affirmative action. I mean, you know, look at what we've done, for example, with uh, something we're supposed to have a civil rights impact that's largely e economic, the Community Reinvestment Act, passed in 1977, over 20 years ago. Now, the Community Reinvestment Act was set up to say to the bank regulators, look, you guys go in and look at these banks and tell them, you've got to take some of your money and invest it in inner cities and in neighborhoods and with people who otherwise would not get it, so they have a chance to, to, to build homes, to build businesses, to, to create jobs, to build neighborhoods. In the 20-year history of the Community Reinvestment Act, 85% plus of the money loaned out under it to poor inner city neighborhoods has been loaned in the five years since I've been president. And he is taking that as a badge of honor of trapping these people in uh, these these loans here. 1998, uh, Andrew Cuomo, who was the uh, Housing, Urban, and Development Secretary, had this to say. Greater risk on these mortgages, yes. To give families mortgages who they would not have given otherwise, yes. They would not have qualified but for this affirmative action on the part of the bank, yes. Minorities are represented in that low and moderate income group? It is uh, by income and is it also by minorities? Yes. With the 2.1 billion lending that uh, amount in mortgages, which will be a higher risk, and I'm sure there'll be a higher default rate on those mortgages than on the rest of the portfolio. In the book, Reckless Endangerment, sorry, that just cut off kind of abruptly there, but in the book, Reckless Endangerment, that deals with the uh, stock market uh, crash of 2008 and what led up to it, and a lot of it is this subprime mortgage stuff, here is in the 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 end of the book kind of, uh, you know, that's, that's going on. So what happened to all these people that caused this, these, you know, people like Andrew Cuomo and everybody else that was involved in this? says, indeed, one of the most frustrating aspects of this story, the rise of subprime and dereliction of duty by so many who participate in the mortgage mess, the cast of characters that help create the mess continues to hold high positions or are holding jobs of even greater power. Some examples, William DeLay became White House Secretary Chief of Staff. This, is, this was written during Obama's administration. Um, and he served on the Fannie Mae board during the 1990s. Timothy Geithner, the relaxed regulator, at the New York Federal Reserve Bank became Treasury Secretary. Others include uh, Tom DeLeon, uh, Fannie's longtime head of government affairs, and a key political operative who is now National Security Advisor to Obama. Uh, Thomas R. Nides, uh, the Fannie Mae Human Resources Executive who figured in the OFHEO investigation into earning manipulations at the company, was nominated to the position of Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources in the fall of 2010. When the White House public publicized both appointments, neither uh, Dillion's nor Nide's year at Fannie Mae, uh, Fannie Mae were mentioned. And as we know, um, the guy we just listened to here, Andrew Cuomo, went on to become uh, governor of uh, New York. And I, I think he might still currently be the governor of New York. These people caused the downfall, destruction, and complete tearing apart of the families of black communities and the uh, economics of black 
communities, especially, to make sure that they have no way of ever pulling themselves up. Like I said before, uh, they learn from their mistakes. They need to decimate a minority in any way that they possibly can to keep them under. And this has been today's act. Thank you.